Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we're welcoming back a very special guest, the keeper of all things Erwin Allen, Mr. Kevin Burns. Kevin, along with his business partner, John Jashney, is an executive producer of the beautiful new Netflix Lost in Space series, the rebooted show enjoyed great success during its 2018 first season, and as of this recording, will return for its second season later in 2019 or early 2020. Recently, the first season of the new Lost in Space was released on Blu-ray DVD, and the set includes some eye-popping special features sure to please fans of the original series as well. A little background info on Mr. Burns. Kevin grew up in upstate New York, and by the time he was Will Robinson's age, he was already a big fan of Lost in Space, watching it during its first run broadcast. That started him on a journey that would result in personal friendships with the cast members of the original series, as well as Erwin Allen's widow, Sheila Allen. That relationship would ultimately culminate in this fabulous new, Emmy-nominated Netflix Lost in Space series. Kevin maintained his love of Lost in Space during his college years in New York and Boston, his teaching career at Boston University, and his later move to L.A., where he landed a marketing and promotion job at 20th Century Fox Television. Later, Kevin established several Hollywood production companies and was nominated for numerous Emmy Awards, winning two, including one for the superb A&E series Biography. Kevin was also writer, producer, or director on many highly acclaimed television documentaries, including The Fantasy Worlds of Erwin Allen, Lost in Space Forever, and many more. Indeed, Kevin is directly responsible for hundreds of hours of television across a wide range of subjects, but the franchise that holds first place in his heart is Lost in Space. Kevin is also the driving force behind the beautifully restored and remastered 50th Anniversary Blu-ray Collection and Ultimate Soundtrack CD Collection that were both released in 2015, as well as the new widescreen Lost in Space DVD Collection released in 2019. For all that, Lost in Space fans owe Kevin Burns a special debt of gratitude. We're going to speak with Kevin today about the latest developments for the Netflix Lost in Space series, including those special features on the Blu-ray set. And of course, we'll talk about his lifelong love of the original Erwin Allen series. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fascinating round two interview 
with Mr. Kevin Burns. Hey, Mr. Kevin Burns, sir. Welcome back to Alpha Control Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you for inviting me back. Yeah, it's great. Well, I'm going to start off with some congratulations to you and your business partner, John Jashney, and really that whole incredible team of talented creators and artists involved with the beautiful new Netflix Lost in Space, because it certainly was a great success. You must be pleased. We're very, very proud of it. Yes. Thank you. And when we spoke last year, the series had only been out for, I guess, a week or so, but I was already talking about season two because, as you know, we really loved it. Uh, But you left us with such an incredible (laughs) Irwin Allen-style cliffhanger. I was like, man, they've got to come back for season two, and we got our wish. You are coming back, correct? We're absolutely coming back. It's already been shot. It's pretty well edited. Uh, We're doing final mixing right now, and Zach Estrin spends most every minute of the day white-gloving all of the CGI special effects shots to make it look gorgeous. Wow. Well, I don't know how you can top season one because it absolutely was gorgeous. And the accolades you got for the special effects work and everything else about the series, really, it was nice to see it appreciated But if whatever you're going to share with us about season two, and I'm sure it's pretty limited at this point, I want to just say congrats again on the new Blu-ray DVD set you released for season one of Lost in Space. You made a lot of Lost in Space fans happy with that. Well, I'm glad about that. You know, we were somewhat undecided early on, like, uh, you know, people can watch it on Netflix all the time and it's in... It's an 8K, and it's gorgeous. And and so the question was, well, do we put it on Blu-ray? Do we put it on DVD? Should we put it out on home video? Does that undercut the Netflix audience or something? And I found out Stranger Things had been put out on DVD, so I thought, well, why not Lost in Space Season 1? And I talked with, actually, the patron saint of Lost in Space at Fox, who unfortunately has just left the company, is a woman by the name of Mary McLaren. Mm who had worked with me for decades. I mean, she was one of the people who helped me start up the documentary company I ran there for several years. And Mary's always been a big, she and her husband, Tom, are big, big, big Lost in Space fans. So Mary was responsible for us getting the Blu-ray out, getting the widescreen DVDs out, which have done very well. Mm. I went to her and said, you know, are, are you guys interested in the Netflix version? Of course she was. So I thought it was kind of nice that Fox put it out. And that because there was that kind of nice relationship between Fox and Lost in Space, we were able to add bonus extras onto the Netflix release that also tied into the classic TV show. Absolutely. And really what a kind of coordinated and symbiotic relationship exists between the classic series and the new series. It's nice to see 20th Century Fox Home Video doing a release like this. I I still can't get used to Disney owning Star Wars, but of course, I guess they own just about everything now. No, they own Fox. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, it's crazy. I but. mean, you know, Legendary owns Lost in Space. Fox you know, and Disney now are only the distributors of the original show. Right. But it is interesting to think that, you know, all the stuff, I did something like 450 hours of television when I was at Fox. And it's interesting to think that, you know, the girls next door with Hugh Hefner and his girlfriends is now owned by Disney. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, this Blu-ray set is fantastic. But those special features that you mentioned, I think, are something that really have a lot of the classic series fans buzzing. Tell us something about those. Well, you know, some of the stuff had been shot but not edited by Legendary, like Bill Mooney's 
tour of the new Jupiter 2 set was something that they had shot Mm-hmm. but had not been edited. And a couple of the featurettes that are on there, you know, one that sizzle reel, which was kind of a, a behind-the-scenes licensing reel mm-hmm. that featured John Jashney and myself and Matt and Burke and Zach, that had already been cut. But they came to me and asked if my company would produce the bonus material. So one of my editors actually cut the footage of Bill touring the set. Like I said, that hadn't been cut. And then Derek Tilgis in my office, who does a lot of development and uh, handles Irwin Allen for John Jashney and I, and coordinates a lot of the licensing, he directed the piece with Max and Bill Moomey mm-hmm. in our conference room. And uh, Bill Moomey and I wrote it together. Uh, Derek directed it with Max and Bill. Our editor uh, cut it, mm. you know, using obviously footage from the new and the old show. I'm really proud of that piece because it's a nice look at how the new series very deliberately and I thought lovingly paid homage to the classic in ways that I'm uh, expecting some of the fans were a little surprised by. You know, the references to, sure. you know, the color orange, for example, mm-hmm. or the sly use of names. You know, it's funny because we talked about Angela Goddard being a character and June Harris being right. a character. And I kind of felt a little bit bad for Marta that Marta's name didn't get referenced. And then I was alerted to the fact that the character with Don West in the first episode, the woman that he travels with who ends up dying in the crash, her name is Tam. And that was kind of a reference to Tam from the original Space Family Robinson comic book. But if you look carefully, her name tag on her uniform says Tam Soderquist. Uh, and Soderquist is Marta Kristen's actual last name. Wow. Uh, so I was glad to see that Marta got a little bit of a shout out. Yeah. And, and in a way that I wasn't even aware until uh, someone pointed out that they said, isn't that Soderquist? And I said, oh, my God, that's Marta's mm-hmm. real name. I thought that was clever. Marta got a big kick out of that, too. I'm sure that is definitely a, <laughs> a well-hidden Easter egg because I didn't realize that either. But as soon as you said the name, it popped out. No, that that Bill and Max feature is is really fun. And, of course, you got both the robots, the new robot and the old classic B9. And I think it really does underscore what you've said about this series. It's keeping the Irwin Allen DNA. And it's really a show that the whole family can enjoy. What I'm particularly proud of, um, because it was not easy, I have to say, look, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a big secret that I'm a big, big fan of the original show. But, you know, when we did this new version, you know, in other words, you know, obviously there are people who take issue with making Dr. Smith a female character and making uh, Judy Robinson the product of a previous mixed race marriage. Uh, not to take credit from anybody else, but those are all ideas that John and I came up with before we even did this particular version. After the John Woo pilot that we did in 2004, we had a chance in 2008 to develop it again for CBS. And we did go to script with it. Uh, actually, the, the cratering economy was what killed that project mm. because it was just too expensive for CBS to take on. But the idea of Smith being a female character and Judy being the product of a previous marriage was deliberate. 
and it was meant to give some dimension to the characters that offered some surprises and also some opportunities to develop story. Mm. And part of it was inspired by not only making the show a little bit more adult-oriented than it was in 1965, but when we met with the actors over the years, whether, you know, June Lockhart or everybody, they were all, I don't want to say complaining, but they would all kind of commiserate that their characters weren't given a lot to do. There wasn't a lot of backstory given to the Robinsons. Right. Uh, you didn't really know anything about them on Earth. You didn't know about John and Maureen or their courtship or, or how they met or how they got married. And we wanted to do that in this new show so that there would immediately be some interest in Maureen's life and John Robinson's life and how they met, how they got married and what would motivate them. And we wanted uh, the Smith character to not be compared to Jonathan Harris. I didn't want anybody to kind of do Jonathan. Right. And if, and if they didn't try to do Jonathan, they would have been criticized for that. Uh, you know, Gary Oldman came to mind where I felt that Gary Oldman was trying so hard not to do Jonathan that it wasn't very satisfying. Uh, so we just figured, well, let's not invite the competition or the the comparison. You know, let's go with a character that could be more of a, I'll use the word, stickster mm. um, with regard to the women of the cast, meaning somebody who could kind of mix in between John and Maureen, mix in between Judy and Don, uh, be more of a kind of an interrupter into the family from a different and, uh, in this way, kind of female perspective. Anyway, but in doing all of that, and the point that I was trying to make is I really didn't want the fans, myself being one of them, to feel alienated from the new show or not welcomed into the new show. Right. Uh, you know, obviously, the robot is so different and some of the other things are different. So all of the things that we did, whether it's the reference to the John Williams theme or the comparisons in terms of some story, or the name June Harris, they were really meant so that the fans of the original could say, look, you're welcome here. We want you here. You know, this is your home too. This is also lost in space. It's not meant to substitute for the original show. It's meant to enhance the experience of the original show. And I think, you know, I'd like to think anyway, that we were very successful in that. And even though... I would say maybe 10, 20% of the classic fans, just for whatever reasons, they just do not want to embrace this new show. And that's understandable and it's expected. But I, I'm happy that the vast majority of the classic fans enjoy this too. They're not supposed to like it better. They're supposed to like it as well. And But you're never going to be able to compare 83 hours produced in 1965, 6, and 7 to... You know, 10 hours produced with a totally different budget 50 years later, you know, and not be frustrated by that comparison. So anyway, we're happy that the classic fans have appreciated the show in the way that we intended. Well, I can only speak for myself and the people that I have interacted with on my show and so forth. But I'd say that the vast majority of them are very pleased with the new Netflix. And look... The original fans of the classic series, you know, we're not going to be <laughs> around forever. And, you know, we want new people exposed to Lost in Space and this new Netflix series. It's probably having a nice effect for the classic series. People well, of get, course it is. Yeah. yeah. In fact, again, I credit Mary McLaren, but she called me up about the, you know, doing the widescreen release, which, you know, I would have loved it to have been on uh, Blu-ray. But she said that Fox wanted to come out with a low-priced DVD box set of the widescreen version. 
for Walmart. And right. so we did that, and we put Lost in Space forever on that, and put some of the bonus extras from the Blu-ray set. But that has sold phenomenally well. Mm. Uh, I think they've sold something like thirty or forty thousand copies and counting. Which in this market, you know, when a lot of people are not buying DVD, that's a huge number. And it continues to sell extremely well. I, you know, I shudder to say many more people bought that than bought the Blu-ray. Uh, the Blu-ray to me is still superior in terms of the quality and the bonus content. Right. But, you know, unfortunately, it's like if you want the whole thing, you have to buy them both. Trust me, I have them both. Right. Uh, me too. <laughs> Um, and, I, and I have to say, even though it's not Blu-ray, I do find myself gravitating toward the widescreen versions, even though, yes, they're slightly cropped on the top and bottom, but they just play very well on widescreen TVs. They work surprisingly well, and they're very user-friendly. So to me, the Blu-rays are like my archival set. You know, yes. That's like the pristine, that's like the master, that looks gorgeous. That's got all the bonus extras. That's like the library. And then for fun, I find myself watching the uh, the widescreen DVDs. Um, but yeah, that sold very well. And I think the Netflix show, uh, to your point, inspires people to check out the original, which was also one of the reasons why we put the pilot, which we haven't talked about, the colorized pilot for yes. the original show on the Netflix Blu-ray. Go there. Go there. Let's talk about this. This is stunning. That couldn't have been easy to pull off. Well, it's very easy to pull off when John and I basically said, why don't we just spend $100,000 and do it? <laughs> which was, which because nobody gave us the money. Uh, you know, I mean, look, the good thing about our stewardship of Irwin's library and the partnership with Legendary, I have to say, is that and and also the legacy that Sheila left us, Sheila Allen, right. was that, you know, John and I have quite a degree of latitude in terms of how to take care of this franchise. I mean, it's really, if the two of us want to do it, we do it. Uh, that's how the Irwin Allen book came about, the one that Jeff Bond wrote for uh, Creature Features. Right. And the colorized pilot. I had always been intrigued with colorizing well, my goal, uh, I hate to admit it, is to maybe colorize the first five episodes, but the cost is extremely difficult. It would come down after a while, but even you're talking about, uh, you know, at least $80,000 an hour. Right. And the technology has gotten, as you can tell from the Blu-ray, much, much, much better than it was years ago. Oh, it's beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say, you know, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would say it's 80% perfect. Mm -hmm. But we really did take a lot of care. And the folks that we worked with and the colorizing took a lot of care. I mean, we gave them notes and they were very attentive to the original colors of the costumes. And they looked at all the color special effects B-roll to make sure that things matched as well as possible. You know, down to, it's funny because one of the first versions of it, they hadn't put the red piping, and it's extraordinarily small, but the red piping on Bill Mooney's collar, oh. uh, on his costume. He has a kind of a gray-blue tunic, but it has like a red and a white stripe on the collar so that it's kind of a red, white, and blue. And when Bill saw one of the early passes, he said, 
they don't have my red stripe. And I had just acquired his original costume at an auction. And so I showed pictures of it to the folks we worked with. And damn if they didn't go back in. And you can see that little red stripe in every shot of his tunic. It's pretty impressive. Amazing. So, no, I mean, we just decided that um, I I knew that Fox was going to put the Netflix series out on Blu-ray. I thought, well... Yes, we have bonus extras. We have the thing with Max and Bill, and we have the piece on how the robot was made. And that was footage that I had shot on the day that we went over to see um, the robot. But I thought, what would be special that would kind of make something more out of the Blu-ray than just watching the Netflix show? Not that that wouldn't be enough, but that would also tell people who love the Netflix show, hey, there's another version of Lost in Space from 50 years ago. You might want to check it out. And I, I use no place to hide is what I call the gateway drug. Right. Uh, we put it in color so that we we didn't immediately turn off the new fans who are going to be shy to look at, let's face it, a first season in black and white. Right. And that way they can kind of watch this. Hopefully they'll say, "Ooh, this looks cool. This looks interesting. And then when they go check out, you know, either the widescreen DVDs or the Blu-rays, they'll see the similarities between the two shows. So it it was an experiment. Can this be pulled off? What will it look like? Will the fans like it? Should we do more of them? I'd say on that level, everything was very successful. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much to you and John for footing the tab for that, because it's definitely a treat to see. And Bill Mooney would definitely know that that red and white stripe is there, because I think I've heard him say that was his favorite of all the three costumes he wore. So that's pretty cool. And the technology is so brilliant. If you did do those first five episodes, obviously, there's some of the footage that could be harvested, I guess, from No Place to Hide, because they use some of it in those episodes. That would be cool. Cool. Yes. And that's why, you know, the uh, company we work with did such a nice job, you know, and they said the more work they do, the easier it gets and the more cost efficient it gets because so much of that pilot informs what they would have to do going forward. So, right. yes, that's very cool. I, I loved watching it. But you know what, Kevin, in the back of my mind, I could hear a familiar voice <laughs> saying, where's Dr. Smith? <laughs> You know, there's a story about that pilot. I, I probably shouldn't tell it, but of course I will. In 1997, my former boss, who was a wonderful, wonderful gentleman by the name of Steve Bell, he had left Fox, where he had been president of network television production, and he was running the Museum of Television and Radio out here in Los Angeles, uh, actually in Beverly Hills. Mm. And he was the West Coast head of the museum. And he was a friend of mine. And of course, he was a friend of the cast because we used to have lunch with them all the time. And so he said, can we do something on the date that the Robinsons supposedly blasted off in October 1997? So we had what we called blast off day at the Museum of Television and Radio. And we had the original robot. We had original props. The cast showed up. And they ran Lost in Space episodes and the Fantasy World's Berwyn Allen and wow. the Never Fear Smith is here all day at the museum. And it was hugely successful. And all during the day, they ran the unaired pilot. Well, that night, they, everyone gathered. I mean, everybody came. Mark Goddard, I mean, everybody. Sheila, her friends, uh, Bill Self, who was head of television production at Fox in the 60s. Yeah. Um, all these people came to watch the first episode. And it was going to be the reluctant stowaway, you know, because that was the episode that says, as the unaired pilot says, but the reluctant stowaway also says on October 16th, 1997. Right. So, and everyone gathers and everybody was excited and blah, blah, blah. 
and it starts, and it's no place to hide. Oops. And, of course, Jonathan is sitting there, and Bob May is sitting there, and Dick Tufeld is sitting there, and I'm freaking out because I'm thinking this is supposed to be the pilot with Jonathan and the robot in it. This is not supposed to be No Place to Hide, which had been running all day. Yeah. So we had to stop it and then start it again with the other copy. And June was upset because she preferred No Place to Hide because it was the series that was really going to feature her and Guy Williams much more sure. uh, than it actually ended up featuring. So June, you know, she kind of stalked out saying, what happened to our pilot? Well, and I looked at her and I said, June, that ran all day. This is, it's got everybody in it. This one's got everybody in it, including Jonathan and Dick Tufeld and Bob May, who were sitting there. Yeah. So it was, uh, that was a little bit of a hiccup. But yes, there are two first episodes and yes, Jonathan would look at this and go, Kevin, you wasted your money. Nobody <laughs> wants to see that. Where am I? Uh, I? I don't see myself. If where is Dr. Zachary Smith? It won't work. It won't work. Just won't work, old boy. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, it won't work. If you don't have me, you got nothing. That's, he was fond of telling me that. He said, you know, it's, it's what he said about the uh, the New Line movie. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the story. Uh, I, maybe I've told it before. Maybe somebody else has told it. But um, when the New Line movie came out, of course, Jonathan and Bill did not want to appear. I mean, uh, Dick Tufeld was brought in to be the voice of the new robot. Yeah. But yeah. Bill was actually up for the part of the 40-year-old Will Robinson, which they should have let him do. Absolutely. They, he would have been an great. Exec, and an executive at New Line killed it. He went in twice to audition for it, by the way. And uh, I can't remember the, the gentleman's name who killed it, but he said, oh, we, we don't want that. Like, they had cameos, but they said, no, we don't want to invite that kind of a comparison. We want it to be our loss of space. Hmm. So Bill, at that point, was crushed because he was perfect for that part. Right. I mean, it was a, I didn't like the script, but he would have been perfect as 40-year-old Will Robinson because he actually looked like the older version of the kid who played the young Will Robinson. And Jonathan, they wanted him to be the Edward Fox character, the man who set Smith off on the mission. And Jonathan just said, no way, I'm not going to be in anything called Lost in Space where I'm not Dr. Smith. Right. He said, Gary Oldman's a very fine actor, and I have no objection to what you're doing, but I'm not going to be in anything called Lost in Space and not be Dr. Zachary Smith. But anyway, so New Line had wanted them so badly, so they paid Bill and Jonathan each, I'll say it, $10,000, probably more than they paid the other cast members to do their cameos, by the way. And they paid them that money just to go to the premiere. Yeah. And they brought the original robot and they flew them to New York and they went to the New York premiere. And I'll never forget, I wasn't there, but Jonathan called me howling. Billy called me howling. Uh, afterwards because Jonathan and Bill came out of the premiere. Of course, all these microphones are then up to their mouth. And it was like, what did you think? What did you think? And, and of course, New Line had paid dearly mm. for these words. And Jonathan's response was, it was so loud. <laughs> he said, it was so loud. <laughs> uh, the people at, at New Line, their faces just turned absolutely white. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he, as he did, usual, he got the last word. <laughs> he got the last word. Uh, not not bad if you like all that special effects. 
Yeah. But it's so loud. Uh, that's crazy. And, I, and Bill and Bill was speechless because he didn't know what to say after that. Yeah. That's anyway. funny. Well, we all miss him. We all miss him. It's it's. Oh, it, I, I miss him too. I mean, yeah. he. I, and you know, it's funny. I spoke to Parker Posey the other day, and and uh, I'm sure the fans have seen these busts of Jonathan that uh, we licensed to uh, Sci-Fi Metropolis years ago. And anyway, I got one for her. Oh. And sent it to her, and she's built a shrine around it. Oh. Uh, she worshipped Jonathan. That's great. And I said, Parker, you know, Jonathan would have never accepted anybody else playing that part, but he would have loved you. I said, I absolutely think he would have loved what you do to the part because, you know, again, he, he could reconcile himself by saying, well, she's not really me. She's just, she, she's, uh, you know, uh, she's not really me. I'm still me. She's playing a character who's absconded with my identity. So, so she is not Dr. Zachary Smith, whatever. Uh, she's her own character, but she's wonderful. She's wonderful in it. I love her. So anyway, Parker is so excited about being this character, I'll tell you. Yeah. Well, it was a brilliant uh, King Solomon way to handle that situation for all the reasons you mentioned. I hope you're enjoying our latest interview with Netflix Lost in Space executive producer Kevin Burns as much as I am. Listening to him, it's clear Kevin's love of the original series is a big part of what compelled him to get the show back on the air. He's got more stories and news to share with us, so sit tight for part two of our conversation with the keeper of all things Irwin Allen, Mr. Kevin Burns. Look, I want to ask you this. You kind of touched on it earlier, but I am so grateful, again, that you did the Blu-ray, not only for the original series, but all those special features. I think they're just awesome. And of course, I love Netflix. I love streaming and everything. But if I really like something, man, I want to own the disc. I want to own the book. I want to own the CD. And I'm reading a lot of things in the press these days about the coming demise of physical media. And it's got me on a binge of buying movies and soundtracks right now. Do you have a position or any insights on this sort of thing? Well, I mean, the, yeah. I mean, the public has tended to shy away from buying media. Mm. Uh, I mean, look, the, the industry isn't not selling physical media because they don't want to. They're not selling it because people are not buying it. People have become, you know, they're, they're into streaming and downloading. And I mean, especially the younger and younger audiences who didn't grow up as I did, you know, buying record albums and buying CDs and whatever. But I think it's scary because I don't like the idea that everything being in a cloud or everything being mm -hmm. downloaded, um, that it could be taken away. Right. Uh, it can be altered. You know, I noticed that certain things that I have bought on iTunes like or movies that I bought or TV shows that I bought, they will occasionally upgrade them without my knowing it. But that means they could also alter it or censor it without my knowing it or delete it. Um, right. I've noticed some titles that I purchased on iTunes disappear because they're out of license. And so I would strongly recommend that 
<laughs> the people listening to this, if you like something, you better buy a physical copy of it because you cannot assume it's going to be around in 5, 10, 20 years. Yeah, and if you want it available in the future, you better buy it now because, uh, like you said, the industry will say, hey, there's no market for this. So people just prefer streaming. I mean, you hear that, folks? Get out there. Buy this Netflix Blu-ray. Buy the widescreen DVDs. Buy the, the Blu-ray set, which is the gold standard. Buy the soundtracks. Buy this new book that's coming out well, from well, Jeff Bond. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, look, watching it on Netflix is great, but I like taking things in my hand. I like the packaging. Right. I like it being kind of tangible. I like holding it. You know, it's funny. Uh, somebody who works for me uh, at my production company came over to my house, and I have tons of books. And they looked at my wall, and they said, oh, my God, you have books. Mm. And I just was shocked. And they said, oh, nobody has books anymore. We don't have books. And, you know, and, and this is a guy who's, you know, about 32 years old. And it was almost frightening to me yeah. um, that things would become so much about the internet or Google that people would stop physically buying books. And again, it's, it's a foreign concept to me, but it's also slightly scary because what you're doing is you're giving control of the information that you ingest to a website, right? You know, whether it's Google or someplace else or Wikipedia, you know, that information may or may not be factual uh, and it may or may not be available. You just don't know. So I, I really think that owning, you know, a DVD or a Blu-ray, uh, even if it's, a, you know, later it's going to be obsolete or upgraded. I think I might have said this the last time we spoke, but I plead with people who love Lost in Space, please get rid of the old DVDs that were made 10, 15 years ago. They're crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're crap. Yep. Um, I mean, I knew they were crap when they were put out, and I was very unhappy with them because I had wanted Fox to remaster the shows then. And the Blu-rays, you know, I mean, say what you will about the outer box, which is a little too thin, but they're gorgeous. You know, the Blu-rays are gorgeous. And, uh, you know, and the widescreen DVDs are kind of convenient. But I just think having this stuff available, whether it's CDs of the soundtracks, which I'm proud of that set that La La Land did, mm -hmm. uh, or this new Fantasy Worlds of Rowan Allen book, you know, I, I don't know. I like having it. I like looking at it. I like walking around with it. You can't substitute for that. No, you certainly can't. And I love my books. <laughs> I love my books. I love my discs. I love all that stuff. It's great to have access to streaming or, you know, downloading things on iTunes. But for all the reasons you said, I'm I'm 100% behind you. So I appreciate the insights there. Well, oh, by the way, another, another thing is we finally got Hulu, uh, which oddly enough is owned now by Disney. Um, but we got Hulu to get rid of the crappy 80s masters of Lost in Space that they were running and to get the new masters. Oh. Um, because like if you, if you watch uh, Lost in Space on Amazon or if you watch it on iTunes, uh, they are the new masters. They're gorgeous. Right. But Hulu had the, what I call the crummy old ones, you know, where the derelict looked really bad. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and now those are all being uh, in the process of upgraded. So, well, that's good news. Well, I know your time is limited, but before we let you go, Kevin, what, if anything, can you tell us about season two? When's it due to hit Netflix roughly and anything else you'd like to share? Well, it's supposed to come out early December, which is tough because, I mean, Zach Estrin, God bless him, he, he does a tremendous job. 
but he's racing against time because what Netflix wanted to do was get it out before Star Wars Episode Nine comes mm. out, and uh, which I think is scheduled for right before Christmas. So we're trying to get it out within the first two weeks of December. No date has been set yet, but that's the goal. You know, again, it's 10 episodes. Great. It uh, doesn't pick up exactly where it leaves off. I will give some things away in that because of the delay in writing and shooting, not only the end of season one, but season two, they had to take into account that Max Jenkins, God bless him, has shot up like a beanstalk. Yep. So there was no way they were going to be able to kind of match into like the next day since there was like a six-month lag from the time production had stopped to the time the new season began. So they wrote that in so that the second season begins seven months after you saw the Robinsons adrift in space. I see. And so it picks up seven months later. It is definitely what we're kind of treating as the middle chapter of a trilogy. Mm. Uh, And that's not to imply anything about what a season three might be, but it's, I would say it's like dark chocolate. It's richer. It's a little darker. It's more character driven because so much of the, you know, all of the foundational work was done in season one in terms of getting to know, okay, here are the Robinsons. Here's who the characters are. Uh, They have survived this first test on this planet. But now I would say that the writers, Matt and Burke and Zach, with their their writing team, uh, have really done a beautiful job of creating the characters with a little bit more depth, not that they didn't have it before, but more nuance, more shades than season one. And it's still fun and it's involving, but, you know, there are different pairs of characters now. Um, You'll see... Uh, Smith and Penny paired up. Uh, you'll see, you know, uh, John and Judy paired up. In other words, it's now really having fun exploring the relationships between these characters and understanding more about who they are and creating a storyline. The story is extraordinarily ambitious and very dramatic and really, really intense at times. I think. I mean, I'll, I'll risk saying it, but I think season one, which I love, season two is better. Wow. Season oh. two is, is even better than season one. The wow. first two episodes in particular are better than a Star Wars movie. Oh, um, gosh. First episodes will blow you away. Oh, man. And, and, and the finale episodes will top that. Amazing. So all I can tell you is that yeah, these guys, people that are working on the show, people that are writing and cutting the show, uh, that are scoring the show, they love the show. Uh. And it really resonates when you see it. Well, this cast can certainly pull it off, I'll tell you that. And, you know, everybody, all the creators, all the writers, the directors, the special effects, everything about it is just top notch. I hope we'll continue to see themes and maybe some callbacks from some of the original episodes. That's always fun as well. 
The music, you mentioned the music. I just listened to an interview with the composer, Christopher Leonards, I think is his name. Leonards, yeah, Chris Leonards. Yeah, he's brilliant. He is brilliant, and I had no idea. Like, there was something like 500 minutes of original score for that thing, and it's just beautiful. That's another CD to go out and buy, folks. It's uh, <laughs> of course Well, they, they couldn't put it all out. I mean, they did put the soundtrack out, but they didn't put all the music out. Right, right. They did so much original score. Right. And, uh, and he's, you know, it's interesting because... When he scored the the first season, you know he wasn't as aware, and I and I confess I haven't heard all the score. And it was recorded, by the way, at Abbey Road Studios in London, right, where, where the Beatles did all of their music. Very lush. But yeah, it's very old school. He's a big fan of John Williams and the original score. Uh, you know, and we, you know, we've impressed upon him. I said, you know, well, we own all of that, uh, which is extraordinary, but. Irwin Allen Productions and you know owned all the publishing, owned all the composition, and Legendary now owns it. And I said, so you know, if you want to reference anything beyond the main theme, a lot of the signature themes from the original show, or if you want to pay homage to some of that, I said that's all available to you, right? To do so, uh, and he was very excited about that. So I'm I'm going to be curious to see uh, how many, if any, references to some of the classic themes of the original series may be interpolated into Chris's score for season two. Well, he had a high bar to meet, in my opinion, because I think the music from the original series is one of the real gems of that entire thing. But he he certainly rose to the challenge. So that's awesome. And it's got me excited about season two in general. <laughs> Just everything you've said has whetted my appetite for that. So we'll look forward to that. What about you, Kevin, as we uh, wrap things up? Uh, are you scheduled to make any future public appearances at this point? I know you do that occasionally or where can people well, catch up with you? Well, I just did AlienCon in Los Angeles, you know, uh, which ties into the show I do for History Channel called Ancient Aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's going to be another one in Dallas in the fall. I've got a series coming out Friday at 10 o'clock. Following Ancient Aliens will be a new show I'm doing with William Shatner called The Unexplained. Oh. Uh, and then in November, the second Tuesday in November is usually when we premiere the Curse of Oak Island on History Channel, and that will come out at 9 o'clock, and it'll be a two-hour premiere. But then the week following, at 10 o'clock, following the Curse of Oak Island, will be another new series we're doing called The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, uh, about this kind of infamous place in Utah that's got supposedly more weird extraterrestrial UFO things going on than Area 51 or... Roswell. And of course, we're still doing, as I said, Ancient Aliens. We finished a series for the Travel Channel called In Search of Monsters. Uh, We just wrapped up season two of The Curse of Civil War Gold. And uh, it's it's just an extraordinary run, plus, you know, the 10 episodes of Lost in Space. So, uh, and we're hoping, crossing our fingers, after season two, we get season three of Lost in Space. Mm, aren't we all? Wow. Well, you, I don't know how you do it. You're, uh, <laughs> you, you've got a lot of irons in the fire, but all that stuff sounds great. It's right up my alley for sure. So we'll make sure to uh, look out for all of those. So, Kevin, 
I just want to say again, I feel like somewhere up there, Irwin and Sheila must be smiling because what you've done, you and John, for the legacy of the Irwin Allen properties is amazing. And this Netflix is like the cherry on top of the cake. It's beautiful. Well, thank you for that. That means a lot. Well, thanks again, Mr. Burns, for being so generous with your time and joining us on Alpha Control. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today, and I know it's going to be a treat for our listeners. When season two comes out, we'll hope we can snag you back to give us a little bit more of your insight. Well, thank you. I'd be happy to. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Wow, that was a blast speaking again with Kevin Burns. I can't wait for the new season of the Netflix Lost in Space and what other projects Kevin has up his sleeve for the future. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.